Uh, hello, and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. My name is David Naff. I'm the Assistant Director of Merck and the host of this podcast. I am joined today by Virginia Palencia, a recent graduate of the Educational Leadership Policy and Justice PhD program at VCU. Dr. Palencia and I are here to discuss her dissertation research, which focused on the accessibility of advanced placement or AP courses for Latinx students in Virginia. Uh, this conversation is also connected with our equitable access and support for advanced coursework Merck study, where we are exploring access to advanced coursework across K-12, including AP classes in high school. Uh, Dr. Plenty is a member of our research team. Um, I was on her dissertation committee, and I can attest to how great this research was. And uh, Dr. Plenty, I'm so glad you could join me today. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. Uh, so share a bit about your background in public education. Um, well, I'm a I'm a proud graduate of public education. Um, I attended the Norfolk public schools in Virginia. Um, and I, let's see, I'm going to date myself late eighties <laughs> and I graduated in 1991. So actually when I entered into that school system, it was a really tumultuous fight about busing mm. and a lot of the um, discussions that we have today in Richmond really relate a lot to what was going on in Norfolk as well. And then I became um, a high school teacher for nine years, I taught mostly English, and I worked a little bit with English learners as well. Do you feel like your experiences in Norfolk at that high school has maybe informed your research a bit too? Yeah, 100%. I think um, if I had to say the first layer or kind of the first, first door that I walked through, it was having to do with tracking. And mm. that related very much to my experiences in high school. Um I'm, a, uh, I'm the first woman in my generation to graduate college. Hmm. Certainly the only one with the master's and PhDs across all of our families. This is a new experience. So although my family was educated, a lot of it was self-educated um, and a lot of pride in that, but definitely not knowing the rules of why you would take an honors class versus a regulars class or even what an AP class was. So when I was in high school, I was really good at English, and I used to, for $20, write people's papers for them. Hmm. <laughs> and um, I used to write papers for um, one of the AP students, and she kept saying, well, why aren't you an AP? That doesn't make any sense. And I was like, well, why would I want to do more work? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense now when I say it, but... Um, I didn't think I was going to college. That wasn't a, hmm. a sure idea in my mind, too. Um, and I think that my school at that time was overwhelmed. I think it was very heavily tracked. We hmm. had guidance counselors, but I don't remember really ever having discussions or being seen or heard, you know. D did you end up taking any AP classes while you were in high school? No, not at all. I finally took, I think, an honors class in my senior year, probably too little, too late. No, I, I did almost all regular coursework in high school. Strange, yeah. <laughs> well, here you are with a PhD now. Yeah. I actually was told it wasn't college material at one point. Mm. <laughs> you know how you do those, um, and, and this is probably dating me too, but they used to do like um, somewhere in 10th grade, they would give you uh, this quiz about what you would be suited for, what kind of work. Right. Um, and I got hairdressing and forest ranger, which... 
<laughs> hey, <laughs> there's still time. <laughs> if you knew me personally, you, there's two jobs I'm I couldn't be less qualified for. Well, uh, you were a teacher for a while, so talk about how your background as a teacher informed your interest in studying access to AP courses among Latinx students in Virginia. I think that walking into a classroom 15 years later, I began teaching around the age of 30. Hmm. I had been a journalist before, and I switched tracks when I became a mother. Walking into a classroom 30 years later, uh, 15 years later, and and seeing that things hadn't really changed is depressing. Hmm really depressing. And, and right away I could see it. I began working in Newport news and I mostly had regular students and it's very plain to me that a lot of these kids had amazing potential, great potential. All they needed maybe was a push or encouragement, maybe sometimes accountability. Right. But certainly the bar could have been raised a lot higher. And I felt, um, it's the bigotry of what they say, like the bigotry of low expectations. Right. Right. So I saw that most of my students in Newport News um, were African-American or black, and they were mostly pushed in the regular classes. And then eventually, when I did teach higher track coursework, you could still see, you know, the differences and the disparities in that. When I finally got to VCU, um, I took my first course at VCU was with Dr. Siegel Holly, and it was mm-hmm. all about segregation and tracking and how we ended up where we are in 2017 at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was, I was riveted. Every word was speaking my language. Every word was speaking the experiences I had personally, um, both as a student and as a teacher. And I have Latinx kids and I worry about the judgments made on them and where that they would get pushed. And I can relate to parents and how easily it is that kids can be tracked one way or the other, that it's it's kind of a rules game, right? If you know the rules, it's like the keys to the kingdom. Right. Yeah. I mean, tracking is something that we talk about so much with our study, and it comes up in the literature a lot. I'm wondering, could you give us maybe sort of a general definition of what you mean by tracking and the idea of like, what does it mean to, or what does it look like for a student to be sort of pushed into one academic track or another. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, often in high school, we were aware that there's regular general education classes, there's honors, and sometimes there's a higher higher rung AP Mm -hmm. or dual enrollment coursework. A lot of people, I think even teachers too, think that um, we just arrive there. It just kind Mm. of happens, you know? By the time you're in the ninth or 10th grade, oh, well, you just want to take that class as opposed right. to maybe an honors class, but not realizing that a lot of a lot of these decisions have been made since the third grade and that if you do want to jump track, there's so many barriers in place, especially for mathematics. Mm-hmm. You would have had to begun your journey at a higher track back in sixth grade and seventh grade and eighth grade when you have those opportunities to take algebra early. But I think the same thing is also true for other coursework as well. So like Mm. a lot of your AP coursework that requires a certain amount of math, for example, well, if you've been tracked into a lower level math, then those those doors are shut to you. And this begins around the second grade, third grade, fourth grade, when we begin to ability group. 
Mm. Um, and from there, um, I think sometimes it's a path of least resistance. We keep people in the same place, whether or not it's appropriate. Right. And also not accounting for, um, now that I, I can now say I'm a teacher, um, I have a doctorate in education and I'm a parent. I can tell you kids change all of the time. <laughs> the sure. ability for growth is not preset. Or you can even take my own example of someone who thought that they weren't necessarily going to go to college, but then later deciding they were going to take it to the ultimate level. Yeah. I mean, if we believe in things like growth mindset, you're right. I mean, tracking is kind of antithetical to that, right? Like the idea that you can know pretty early on what a student's academic capabilities are, that they're inevitably going to continue to persist on that that pathway. Because I think the the higher up students get in school, this is definitely consistent with my experience as a high school counselor, it can start to feel like, oh, students are making their own decisions about the courses that they're going into. And that's why they're in the classes that they are. But there are these sort of systematic things that we're doing along the way to keep students in the same academic trajectory from an early age. And it's it's also interesting, too, because I think we both have high school background, right? So much of what students are in high school is what they personally believe Hmm. and how quickly that can change from something positive to negative or negative to positive, unfortunately. You know, and I think my biggest mantra to my students all the time was, well, I didn't think I was going to go to college. It's better to just be prepared. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) What's the harm in having more education? What's the harm in learning as much as possible? It's going to benefit you. Right. Um, And that's a beautiful thing when you see that growth mindset in action. But we don't have structures in place to really allow for that as much as we would like. Yeah. I know our team is really excited to learn more about how we can maybe disrupt some of these practices that have been in place for a long time. And shifting focus here a little bit towards specifically AP classes, what does the literature say about the accessibility of AP courses for students who are from racial and ethnic minority backgrounds? Most of the literature, um, most of the research out there says that a lot of students um, are segregated away from that opportunity, Um, that they're attending under-resourced schools, that if you're attending um, more urban schools and suburban schools, you're going to have less access. Hmm. So in in a sense, there's, there's two different Americas happening with two different sets of opportunities. And that gets really scary when you start thinking about social replication and um, what is the purpose of school? Why is the purpose for school for a certain group of kids to take it to the ultimate level and maybe not necessarily for the other set of students? Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by social replication? I would say that there's a lot of debate about what the purpose of school is. Some people say, oh, it's to learn the liberal arts. And some people say, no, it's to prepare for a career. And others say, no, it's to prepare for university. And I think that um, social replication is really tied deeply into the idea of preparing students for work. Hmm. And the idea, what it ends up being is people ultimately staying in their lane a predetermined Hmm. lane. So if I have a certain group of kids who have access to a great number of AP courses and supports, I'm certainly pushing them in a lane towards university and to a higher earning position and higher earning power with a bachelor's or a master's or those things that can unfold before you. 
when you have those choices. But if I have less access, then I'm being pushed towards lesser economic power, lesser opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and we see that stratification uh, in play on ground right now in 2020. Yeah, so tracking is something that doesn't just happen in school. It has potential implications for post-secondary as well. 100%. Um, and the research shows it's incredibly connected. Thinking of this from an AP standpoint, one of the things that, like the, the idea of being able to be exposed to college-level coursework while in high school is pretty important, right? Like we want our students to engage in rigorous courses. The research that we've been doing on AP so far is has been looking at what the history of AP is and how the program was essentially designed for students who are already high achievers in school to, to get them sort of a leg up on their first or second year of college, to get them extra prepared for those first years of college and specifically for really elite universities. AP access has definitely expanded over time, but there's still these pretty dis distinct racial and socioeconomic disparities in who's actually accessing and um, succeeding in AP classes. And I think a lot of it probably comes back to this philosophy of like, what is the purpose of an AP class? We want our students to have access to college level coursework while they're in high school, but who do we want to have that access for, right? Like, is it only students who are already the top achieving students necessarily? Or do we want somebody who is considering college, who is willing to push themselves? Those students should be able to take those AP classes too. Um, if we really want to expand AP access, we might need to reconsider sort of the philosophy of who should be taking AP classes. I think um, 100%. I think that, I think for kids that are already in a good situation, you know, well-resourced school, maybe a well-resourced home, they're already going to university anyway. Many of them are engaging in AP um, for the sake of their transcript. You know, mm -hmm. um, it also factors into college admissions. It makes you look good. It helps you, right. gives you that boost. So there's that. But for, for a student who doesn't have those income streams, I, I can tell you, I was angry when I found out that you could save money with AP later on. Right. Why didn't I know that? Why yeah. isn't that shouted from the rooftops? Why isn't it sure. clear that you can apply to um, have the fee for the exam waived, you mm -hmm. know, or have it as a reduction? Why is that not communicated? So there's these systems in place that are intended to expand access for AP, but students aren't always aware of them. Right. And then when we, we dive deeper, one of the reasons, many reasons I looked into um, completion for for the AP dissertation that I did was I think a lot of times we look at access, we're very interested in access, and there's a fair amount written on it. But there's not a lot written or not as much written about what happens when that student's in the classroom after several months. Are they actually mm -hmm. passing the exam? Um, and so what I found is that urban schools in Virginia have a fair amount of AP coursework, but when you look at the completion rate, it's troubling, especially mm -hmm. for Latinx students and Black students. Um, and so that tells me that just having access is not enough. We have to make sure that they have access to um, strong teachers. Mm -hmm. There's supports out there. Um, they know they know how to take the test. They know how to get maybe a discount or waiver on that test. Um, and all of these different factors that come into play. So if I'm in a suburban school with a lot of access and 
a lot of supports. They may have workshops for parents, but that's not necessarily guarantee for other kinds mm-hmm. of schools. Right. And I know that this was a finding in your study that's pretty consistent with the literature that suburban schools, larger suburban schools tend to have greater access to AP courses. Like it's, um, it's not uncommon for a school to have a quote unquote AP program defined by having at least one AP course in the school. Right. Um, but suburban schools in particular tend to have large numbers of AP courses that are available to them. Why is that? Why do we see it more in some of these larger suburban school divisions? I'm not sure the precise answer to that, but my guess would be um, these are usually better resourced school districts, Hmm. you know, just historically. So with better resources comes more opportunities, hopefully for all students. So one of the findings of my study um, in regard to access was that the greatest amount of AP coursework available is in suburban schools. Hmm. But interestingly, that's also where most Latinx students attend. But yet when you when you dig into that more deeply, you find that there is disproportionality in enrollment and there is disproportionality in completion. Now, part of the dissertation, I did um, a case study on two school districts. The big picture, um, you know, the bird's eye view of access in the state of Virginia it pretty much says that Latinx students have access um, with the exception of alternative schools and Department of Justice schools where they're disproportionately Mm -hmm. enrolled. There's no AP except for one alternative school in Prince William County. Mm. But when I did the school district analysis, now the picture became more clear. So if I have 25 schools, for example, in one of the districts, the range of AP coursework uh, available was zero to 24. Hmm. And you can take a guess as to which students went to which schools. Sure. There was segregation. And so it's dangerous because if Hmm. I were going to be just taking a quick snapshot of a state, if I were going to use Virginia as an example, I would think, oh, access is fine. Mm -hmm. Clearly, we have to dig deeper to find the problem or that there is a problem. Well, I mean, you mentioned the the difference between access and actual enrollment, which which would suggest that there's segregation happening even within the school level. So not just that some schools have disparate access to AP, but even for schools that do have stronger access, that some of our um, racial and ethnic minority students are less likely to enroll in those AP courses. What do you suspect is happening there from your research? Well, just to build on that, too, um, one of the findings was that while Latinx kids um, in number are, you know, attending suburban schools higher in number, when we actually looked at the proportion, um, the enrollment is greater in urban schools than in suburban schools for Latinx students. Hmm. So I don't know if this is a comfort level, if this is a, a culture level, like the school culture Um that maybe in urban schools, there's greater outreach to Latinx students to enroll in AP. That might be one thing I think might be going on compared to the suburban schools. A whole other study that I would love to look at is kind of what is an AP going culture in suburban schools? What is happening where we have these high number of courses? And even though there's disproportionality, we do have all groups enrolling. What's happening there? What's, what's the secret sauce there? Right. Um, why is there greater um, enrollment in urban schools for Latinx students? I'm not sure. 
Well, I wonder, um, the, I mean, the research suggests that belonging has something to do with it. So part of the reason why students select into a course is social of wanting to be with their peer group. And the research has shown that racial minority students might be less likely sometimes to enroll in advanced courses, even if they're academically qualified, because they don't want to be one of only a few racial minority students that are in that class. And so that's a possible explanation for the urban suburban divide that you're talking about, where if you're in a school that's has a greater population of Latinx or African-American students or black students, it might be more likely that you're going to attend class with other students in your peer group. I think that that's definitely a piece of the puzzle. Um, And Mm. the research that I've seen supports that as well. You don't want to be the lonely only. It's exhausting, (laughs) especially by the high school level. And when I talk about what I saw in high school and as a teacher, that's also what my students would say. You know, oh, Miss Palencia, I don't belong in a class like that. Look at me. Mm. I unfortunately have had, had children say that to me. I do think the sense of belonging is is a piece, but I also think that um, as somebody who's gone to an urban school, um, taught in urban schools, I don't recall any outreach about AP or what it was um, sure. in my day. And I think that I think information is so important, especially in the hands of underserved people. So I yeah. do think that outreach must be a piece of it. How do you Absolutely. how do we know what to do? How do we know the benefits? There's a, there's a study that has been a part of our literature review on AP that we're doing where the authors surveyed AP teachers across the country about what they saw as the key aspects of their roles. Very rarely did teachers say that they felt like part of their role was to actively recruit underrepresented students in AP to come to their AP classes which very much speaks to what you're saying. Oh, I think it's so true. And I remember um, looking at that and it resonated so much with me because um, when I was mentioning what the the student had said to me, you can imagine my response. <laughs> I right. became committed to recruiting kids to, to, to the honors class I might have sometimes. Um, you can do it. And that's so important. In Virginia, by and large, uh, we have self-selection into AP. Hmm. So um, the idea that you have to test into it or you have to rely solely on teacher recommendation doesn't really hold for us. Now, self-selection could be a pretty great term. (laughs) It could maybe mean a lot of things. But I know that at least for all of the schools that I worked in, it was in theory self-selection. What's interesting is a number of teachers I worked with over the years expressed resentment about it. They felt that students should be uh, tested in. They, sh- they felt it should be only teacher recommendation um, and maybe not seeing the danger of that, you know, and maybe that's speaking to an older way of doing things. Um, but I think it's true. I don't think teachers feel maybe heard enough. I think maybe teachers don't know perhaps the power they have maybe to change the system. Right. Why does this matter that, there's disparate access to AP classes for some of our students. Uh, you know, it matters on a number of levels for me. It matters on a moral level. It matters on a personal level. And it matters on an economic level. And one of the reasons why I chose a quantitative study was because I believe to begin having a conversation, you need to have numbers. You need to... <laughs> 
you need to show people, here's the proof, here are the numbers, so we can at least begin a discussion of change to get to get everybody at least at the table for a conversation. And I think that economically, when we think about this pipeline, this educational pipeline, every time you make a decision about somebody, you know, speaking as a system, right, you're actually making economic choices about my life, about our lives. So, for example, if you're redlined, you made a decision, somebody out there, about where you get to live. And where you get to live means where you get to go to school. And where you go to school means what resources you have. And the decisions that your elementary school teachers make, some good and some bad, some uninformed maybe, lead directly into the decisions you have at high school. How much information you get about AP in college leads directly to your economic opportunity after that. That translates into tangible dollars. The opportunity gap is real. One of the reasons I looked at the STEM or I felt STEM was important is because I feel like um, Latinx students are left out of the STEM conversation a lot. Right. But if that's where the future jobs are, why aren't they part of this conversation? And if you're hmm. almost a quarter of our population, why isn't that a part of the conversation? Hmm. You know, it's interesting, and this goes into social replication, and I can get angry, but you've made a decision maybe about my kid that because mm. you're used to seeing my kid as a gardener, <laughs> you know, or in construction. Yeah. But if you go to Costa Rica, they're engineers, mm -hmm. they're professors. What's the difference? And so it's so important for us to understand that we have systemic racism just woven into a lot of our decisions and habits. And the economic gap, the opportunity gap makes decisions that ripple for generations. So it, it does matter. It, it, it really is incredibly important because education is that one chance, that free and fair public education, that one chance to gain as much ground as possible. And then morally, I want everybody to have a fair and equal shot. That's it. Hmm. Everybody. And it's important that everybody has the access that they're entitled to by right and law. And it's it's worth mentioning that there are other advanced courses in high school besides AP. So, uh, I mean, International Baccalaureate and Dual Enrollment, for example, um, and other honors classes. But the research shows, and I mean, data from College Board makes it pretty clear that AP is overwhelmingly the way that high schools provide advanced coursework and college preparatory coursework to their students. So having disparate access to those courses is uh, is definitely consequential. And the AP STEM piece is really important too, because the research definitely shows that the disparities are particularly pronounced in AP STEM classes, like, you know, AP chemistry, bio, calculus, yeah. physics, those kinds of classes. Uh, yeah. I think that these decisions aren't little or small as people believe. I personally love dual enrollment and I wish they would expand it to almost two years worth of college because that lessens the gaps in my opinion. Well, speaking of things that you'd like to see happen, what recommendations would you offer to schools and school divisions about expanding access and support for AP courses for Latinx students? I think um, the most important thing is you need to first revisit your access policy. How do students get into AP in your district or in your school? And then how well are you communicating it? 
how well are you providing supports maybe to families who haven't participated before? I think that you need to shore up and open up your access policy as much as possible. I personally believe as an educator, everybody deserves a chance at it. And if it doesn't work out, okay, but why not? What's the harm? I think that enrollment is also incredibly important. If we're finding consistent disproportionality in enrollment over and over and over again, I would like to see that a school district has somebody keeping a bead on those numbers and deciding what to do about them. You, you can't do, I think, a prescriptive solution because each school district is, is individual, right? But there should be somebody at the wheel paying attention and monitoring those numbers. And if they don't look good, asking the hard questions, why? Hmm. And then I think for completion is incredibly important to me, is making sure that we have our best possible teachers with perhaps the students who need it the most. So, for example, in a segregated school district, right, I might have um, a really great AP teacher in a suburban school with, you know, a ton of coursework, and maybe my completion rates are strong. What if in a school down the road, the completion rates aren't strong? Often we're contracted to the district, not an individual school, right? Why aren't we sending that teacher to that school? Maybe even giving them a little stipend. Hey, I know you don't want to go to James Madison or whatever that school is. Here's a little stipend off the top, but we need you for a few years because you're so good at what you do. Why not that? Um, but then I'm not really employed in policy. But these are things I think about. I'm really curious for future research. When you look at a segregated school district, who decides which schools get what courses? That's fascinating to me. And I think that that's a study worth looking into. Why is there such disparity? Who makes those decisions? Is it how are How's the money divided between the schools for that. I don't know. And I mean, you spoke to this about what school level practices there are for granting access to AP, for example, potentially with some division level oversight. It seems like a lot of these decisions for enrolling students in courses happens at the school level, um, which in a lot of ways, I think is beneficial because you want to allow educators to respond to the unique needs of their students like they know them better than anybody because they work with them all the time but maybe we need to share some of these sort of trends that we see about like these are some school level things that can potentially be inhibitory for students that are interested in AP but find that they're actually encountering some barriers along the way. 100% and I think another area or another rock to really overturn is English learners in AP. Um, especially in regard to STEM. I can understand perhaps an English learner not taking an AP um, English course, but there are some courses that I wonder, we certainly have gifted English learners out there um, and they're definitely underrepresented as well. Sure. Well, there's, I mean, there's so much to unpack with this and your your dissertation is um, thorough and very helpful and has a, a ton of practical recommendations and resources for folks who work in schools, but also folks who work in policy when we're trying to make some decisions around making advanced coursework, specifically AP classes, more equitable for our students. So um, I hope that 
everybody who listens to this goes and checks that out because uh, we're going to need to leave that there for now. But if you want to learn more about Dr. Palencia's research, you can access this fascinating dissertation for free. That's right, for free on <laughs> VCU Scholars Compass. Uh, and that's scholarscompass.vcu.edu. Uh, you can also learn more about our equity and advanced coursework study on the Merck website at merck.soe.vcu.edu slash projects. That's merc.soe.vcu.edu slash projects. Uh, we will be sharing lots of information from this study. It's a big study. So be sure to sign up for our email listserv to stay up to date on this research. You can also subscribe and listen to other episodes of Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and recently Google Podcasts. We're very exciting to, excited to, to finally be on Google too. Our thanks as always to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck. And to all of our partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, Powhatan, and Richmond Public Schools. Thanks to Dr. Virginia Palencia for sharing her research and to you for joining our conversation today. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium and the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon.